0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales Après moi le Deluge, Part 2 This is London. The Air Ministry have just issued the following communication. In the early hours of this morning, a force of Lancasters of Bomber Command, led by Wing Commander G.P. Gibson, DSO, DFC, attacked with mines the dams of the Myrna and Sauber Reservoirs. Control of the water storage In the previous tale about the Dam Busters raid, we talked about the life of Wing Commander Guy Gibson, who led the newly formed 617 Squadron on its first operational mission to attack the great dams of the Ruhr Valley. However, we've got a little ahead of ourselves, as the attack would never have come about had it not been for the genius of one man. Gibson describes the man as a scientist and very clever aircraft designer as well. He was neither young nor old, but just a quiet, earnest man who worked very hard. He was one of the real backroom boys, of whom little will be told until after the war, and even then I'm not sure their full story will be told. The backroom boy was Barnes-Wallace, a man who was one of four children, born to Edith Wallace and her husband Charles. Charles was a doctor, and they all lived in Ripley, Derbyshire, where Charles had his medical practice, despite contracting polio from one of his patients, which left him crippled. Barnes and his brother John had turned part of the house into a workshop, which may have given birth to his wish to become an engineer. The bright child, Barnes won a scholarship to a school called Christ's Hospital in Horsham, Surrey, a long way south from their home in Derbyshire. From there, he moved to a grammar school built by the Worshipful Company of Habitashers. Although Barnes was a natural at mathematics, English and science, he was completely incompetent at Latin. By the end of his successful education, He had decided that he wanted to be an engineer, a profession where a lack of skill with Latin wasn't really a hindrance. So at the young age of 17, he was apprenticed to a shipbuilder on the Isle of Wight as a marine engineer, and he completed a degree course in engineering via the University of London. An opportunity came up for him to work at Vickers designing airships, and along with John Temple, he led the way in airship construction, building the R-100, at the time the largest airship ever designed. His concept of geodetic construction gave the airship immense strength whilst ensuring a light structure, and harked back to the work done by Professor Schutt, who built the airship LS-1 in 1909, a design which had also been explored by Joshua Humphreys in his use of diagonal structures in the construction of the first US Navy frigates in the late 1700s and can be seen in the interior hull of the USS Constitution on display in Boston Harbour. Simply put, the design makes use of a frame formed by a spirally crossing basket weave of load-bearing members concept allows two geodesic arcs to intersect on a curved surface in a manner that cancels out the torsional load on each arc, giving great strength. The R-100 was a fantastic success and flew to Canada and back, but following the entirely avoidable crash of its sister ship, the R-101, built by the Air Ministry, the project was abandoned and the R-100 broken up. It was in 1922 that Wallace met Molly Bloxham. Wallace was a shy man, and had never been in love until he encountered Molly. They met through his father's remarriage following the death of his wife, and Wallace took a shine to Molly immediately. Her father, however, did not approve of their courtship. Fortune, though, was on their side, as at the time Molly was struggling with mathematics as part of her degree course, and it was through mathematics that Barnes was able to continue writing to her. Her father decreed that the two could correspond only if Barnes taught Molly mathematics in his letters. What followed were a series of witty, tender, and totally accessible introductions to calculus, trigonometry, and electrostatic induction that, remarkably, wooed and won the girl. On St George's Day 1925, Barnes and Molly got married, and their union followed with four children of their own, in addition to adopting Molly's sister's children, when they were sadly orphaned following their parents' death in an air raid. The family lived in Effingham, Surrey, only a few miles from where I was raised. By now, Wallace had moved to the Vickers Aircraft Factory at Brooklands Motor Circuit and Aerodrome to work on pre-World War II aircraft. His geodetic construction was used in the Wellesley, the Warwick and the Windsor aircraft as well as the better-known Wellington bomber. Only the Wellington was to be built in any great number, and it was still operational at the end of the war and renowned for its ability to withstand substantial damage. During the structural testing performed at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, the proposed structure demonstrated not only the required strength factor of six, but reached a factor of eleven without any sign of failure proving that the geodesic design had a strength far in excess of normal levels. In parallel to his aircraft designs, Wallace saw a need for strategic bombing to destroy Germany's ability to construct their weapons of war. In a paper, he wrote... If their destruction or paralysis can be accomplished, they offer a means of rendering the enemy utterly incapable of continuing to prosecute the war. As a means to achieve this, he developed a 10-ton super bomb. At the time, there wasn't an aircraft capable of carrying such a weapon, so in addition to his detailed work on the weapon, he designed a six-engined aircraft that could carry it as well. The Victory Bomber made it to the wind tunnel, but by then the Lancaster was being modified to carry these monster weapons so this vast aircraft wouldn't be needed. His super-bomb wasn't just a big weapon. The RAF already had those in the form of blockbuster bombs. It followed a different concept that Wallace had devised in that it had a very strong casing and a long, slim, ogival shape with an armoured pointed tip that was designed to penetrate deep below the surface of the earth. In this way, the resultant explosion would create an effect similar to a powerful earthquake by creating strong shockwaves. As if that wasn't enough, the explosion created massive caverns below the surface known as camuflets, which caused the surface to firstly heave upwards and then collapse down into the space created, known as the trapdoor effect. The airmen who dropped these bombs reported that the target structures often stood undamaged by the detonation, but then the crater collapsed, the ground shifted, and the target collapsed. The bomb was dropped from high altitude and accelerated under the influence of gravity to near supersonic speeds. The Lancasters that carried the ten-ton weapon, known as Grand Slam, and the smaller 5.1-ton Tallboy, had to be specially modified, and after takeoff, the wings bent upwards six to eight inches more than usual. What's more, upon its release, the Lancaster would usually leap two or three hundred feet upwards. These massive bombs took time to construct, particularly since they were filled with hot, molten Torpex explosive poured by hand into the base of the upturned casing after melting it in kettles. The Torpex took a full month to cool, so precious were these bombs that, should a sortie be abandoned, the crew were told to bring the weapon back home rather than jettisoning it. When this occurred, the bomber would often have to divert to land at an airfield with a very long runway to accommodate their extra landing weight. This massive bomb could do remarkable damage to infrastructure that was previously considered untouchable. Some of the successful attacks were on such targets as the Saumur Rail Tunnel, where a boy bored through 60 feet, that's 18 metres, of hillside to explode inside the rail tunnel, completely blocking it. Heavily fortified V2 launch sites were rendered useless, bunkers destroyed, and U-boat pens covered with over 14 feet, more than 4 metres of reinforced concrete, were smashed open. The Nazi V3 guns, known as the London Gun, which fired huge shells, powered by rockets and accelerated by multiple charges inside the barrel, was housed inside a bunker within a hillside. It was destroyed by tall boys. Fifty-four raids against the Schildesche viaduct had no effect, but one attack with a grand slam completely destroyed sections of the structure. Perhaps the most famous target was the German battleship Tirpitz, hit by three toll boys, two direct hits and one near miss, and that caused the ship to capsize immediately and subsequently explode when fire spread to a magazine. The death toll was over 1,000. The weapon that Barnes-Wallace is best known for is, of course, the bouncing bomb, more correctly known by its code name upkeep. The dams of the Ruhr had been identified as an important strategic target even before the start of the Second World War. In addition to providing hydroelectric power and pure water for steelmaking, they supplied drinking water and water for the canal transport systems. Calculations indicated that attacks with large bombs could be effective, but required a degree of accuracy that was beyond the most sophisticated bomb-aiming systems. The size of the dams made them near impossible to destroy. They were constructed from concrete and steel, and the Ida was three-quarters of a mile, that's 1.2 kilometres thick at its base. Wallace knew that unless the explosive charge could be kept very close, preferably in contact with the dam wall, the water in between would cushion and disperse the force of the explosion. However, should a mine be detonated in contact with the dam, then the effect of the explosive would be amplified by the mass of water and reflected back as secondary shock waves with devastating effect. The Germans knew that the dams might be susceptible to attack and had wisely fitted torpedo nets to protect them. It was early in 1942 that Wallace began experimenting by skipping marbles over water tanks in his garden, leading to his paper, written in April that year, entitled Spherical Bomb Surface Torpedo. The idea was to ricochet, or skip, a bomb along the water's surface, avoiding the torpedo nets, until it came to rest directly against the side of a battleship, or in this case, a dam wall. There it would sink until, much like a depth charge, a hydrostatic pistol fired, setting off the explosive. The development of upkeep and the actual attack on the dams of the Rura is a fascinating story and we'll be told in the next tale or two. During the war, Wallis had been dispersed with Vickers Design Office from Brooklands to the nearby Burr Hill Golf Club, But when peace was declared, he returned to the main factory as the head of Vickers Armstrong Research and Development Department and was based in the former Motor Circuit's 1907 clubhouse. Here, he and his staff worked on many futuristic aerospace projects, including supersonic flight and variable geometry wing designs. He designed and had constructed an enormous atmospheric chamber then the largest in the world, called the stratosphere chamber. With a volume of some 40,000 cubic feet, over 11,000 cubic meters, by the use of vacuum pumps and refrigeration units, it could simulate the atmospheric conditions at 70,000 feet, where the pressure was one twentieth of that at sea level and the temperature down to minus 65 degrees centigrade. Many aircraft would be tested within this chamber, as well as marine vessels, guns, armoured vehicles, radar heads, and the like. Even Arctic explorers made use of the facility to develop clothing for sub-zero temperatures. Along with his variable geometry, wing designs, such as the futuristic swallow concept, tail, this aircraft, he worked on laminar flow theory in both aircraft and underwater designs, such as the experimental rocket-propelled torpedo, codenamed Hay In 1955, Wallace agreed to act as a consultant for the project to build the Parkes radio telescope in Australia. Some of the concepts he suggested were used in the final design, including the idea of supporting the dish at its centre, the geodetic structure of the dish, and the Master Equatorial Control System. Sadly, unhappy with the direction the project had taken, Wallace left the team halfway into the design study and refused to accept his £1,000 consultant's fee. In the 1960s, Wallace proposed using large cargo submarines to transport oil and other goods, thus avoiding surface weather conditions. Moreover, his calculations indicated that power requirements for an underwater vessel were lower than for a comparable conventional ship, and they could be made to travel at a much higher speed. He developed ideas for aircraft capable of efficient flight at speed ranges from subsonic to hypersonic, and his understanding of supersonic aerodynamics led to research that underwrote the variable-geometry design of the air intakes for Concorde's Olympus 593 engines. His ideas were many and varied, a brilliant aircraft designer with a flair for what we might glibly call thinking outside of the box. He found solutions where others would shrug their shoulders in bewilderment. Wallace became a fellow of the Royal Society and was knighted in 1968. He also received an honorary doctorate from the Harriet Watt University. He was awarded £10,000 for his war work from the Royal Commission on Awards to Inventors, but his lasting grief at the losses that occurred in the Dambusters' attack caused him to donate the entire sum to his alma mater, Christ's Hospital School to set up the RAF Foundationers' Trust, which, to this very day, allows the children of RAF personnel, killed or injured in action, to attend the school. There are a number of pubs named after this very British hero, and even a beer, the Amber Ales Barnes-Wallace, described as an IPA-style bitter, fit for a local hero, who once lived on Butterly Hill. Wallace lived with his family in Effingham from 1930 until his death on the 30th of October 1979. He was buried alongside Molly at St. Lawrence Church. On his gravestone is an epitaph written in Latin, a language he never mastered. Supernit Humum Vigiente Penna It is the motto of the Christ's Hospital Barnes-Wallace Foundation, and is taken from Horace. It reads, severed from the earth with fleeting wing. At noon on the day he was laid to rest, an Avro Vulcan bomber from 617 Squadron, the Dambusters, flew overhead as a mark of respect respect for a man that all the allied nations owed a great debt of gratitude. If you enjoyed this story, Please leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.